All right, so we'll, we'll pray and we'll look at today's story. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, just lead us and guide us, Lord, as we uh, fly over chapter 38 and look at chapter 39. Lord, I ask that you would, you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would help us along. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Okay, so before I get into the reading of this, um, one of my hesitations in going through the book of Genesis was chapter 38. This is a, a chapter that's very difficult. Uh, when, I, when I start a book of the Bible, I like to go through the book of the Bible. There's been exceptions where I sort of will fly over sections. And, but, but whenever I do that, it causes a lot of grappling of how, how, how do I best handle it. And so Genesis chapter 37 through the end really is about the life of Joseph. It's, it's the sort of the fourth a uh, figurehead of the patriarchs uh, that flows through Genesis. A lot of time is given to Joseph. And we come to chapter 38, and there's this, this sort of uh, story. And so uh, if you talk to some commentators, they vote on just uh, skipping it all together, uh, doing a quick sampling with some people. They said, skip it all together. And I'm like, ah, I got to at least give us some like framework because I think it fits somehow that we have to understand. And this has been like my enigma over the last months trying to figure out how do we cover this? Uh, the, the, it's, it's explicit and it's disturbing. And so I will more talk about the story than read the story and really get into chapter 39. But J. Vernon McGee on this chapter, this is what he says. This is another chapter that seems to be as necessary as a fifth leg on a cow after you have read the story, you may wish that it had been left out of the Bible. Many people have asked me why this, why this chapter is in the Word of God. I agree, it is one of the worst chapters in the Bible. But it gives some background on the tribe of Judah, out of which the Lord Jesus Christ came. This fact makes it important that it be included in the biblical record. In this chapter, you will read names like Judah, uh, Tamar, Perez, and Zerah, if you think they sound familiar, it is because you have read them in the first chapter of Matthew. They are in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, this, that is an amazing thing. Our Lord came into a sinful line. He was made in all points like we are, yet he himself was without sin. He came into the human line. Uh, where all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that's sort of his, his synopsis. And as we look at the first two verses, I'm going to read the first two verses of this, and then I'm going to sort of summarize the, the flow of it to get to chapter 39 for time's sake. Um, it really highlights the, the evil of, of, of a culture uh, and, and the need for a savior. And it's, it's fascinating to me that when you look at this chapter, that's really vile to see that when you read the genealogy of, of Jesus, really, this is the genealogy that he flowed through. And the, Joseph, it's just a different story. So it's really fascinating. I probably have more questions than answers at this point. And my heart is to, to follow the flow of Joseph's life. But I do think that at least in a thumbnail sketch, this this chapter needs to be sort of covered. And so we come to verse 1 of chapter 38, and we read there, 
And it came about that time that Judah departed and that he departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Okay, I can read this part very easy. Um, So we see Judah. And the first thing that we see in the life of Judah is that he departs from his family. He runs. He seems to, to be fleeing. The text doesn't tell us why he's fleeing. And so we can only sort of speculate. And many people speculate that Judah has a guilty conscience and he feels terrible for what he's done to his father. Uh, I don't know how he felt about Joseph at this time. Um, But if we were to go back to chapter seven and look at verse 26, we see Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and to cover up his blood? Come, let, it, let, let us sell him to the, the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. <clears throat> so in the whole plan of what they did, Judas seems to be the, the ringleader, the one who led the brothers, and they go along with a plan. Their dad becomes heartbroken. Then he has to sort of uh, deal with the guilt. So some speculated that he, he fled. He flees. He finds a, uh, a foreign wife, this Canaanite woman named Shua. The Israelites were not supposed to intermarry with the Canaanites. And if you're to read this story and go through on your own, uh, a warning needs to be given. Not, about the, not so much about the content of the story, but in your thinking. See, we transpose sort of rules and regulations and guidance into the story that didn't exist during this time. Everything in this story existed before the Mosaic law was given. There wasn't sort of rules and regulations and the, the, the culture that was there, their, their, their mor- moral bearings were very different than ours because this existed prior to the law. Uh, obviously, God was not happy, but when we go down the track of sort of the, the explicitness of the story and the vial that happens in the story, I, it's very easy for us to sort of lose track on the, the bigger picture of what's happening in the story. And so from the second half of verse 2 through verse 11, uh, we see that Judah takes a foreign wife. They, they immediately have three sons. So they have a son named Ur right away. Uh, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so they have these three sons. Then we're told that this first son, Ur, er, but it's more fun to think of him as an heir, uh, he named Tamar. So Tamar is introduced in the story. They get married. What the Bible tells us is that God was very displeased with this man. And so God took him out of existence. So he was an evil man. God took his life. Um, in chapter 38, God really isn't mentioned in this chapter other than he was unhappy with a handful of individuals and their punishment. So Er, Er, I think is how you say it, Er, killed by God. And now you have Tamar, who's a widow. Uh, a lot of people reference the Leverite law, uh, which is further in the Bible, like a, further, like a little bit farther down the road. And a lot of times we know the Leverite law because this was a portion of the law that the Sadducees questioned Jesus when they're trying to trip him up. And they're asking, okay, 
such and such brother marries this girl. He dies. Brother number two marries the girl. He dies. Brother number three marries the girl. And then he dies. And then brother, they go down the list and they're like, now they all get to heaven. Who's married to her? And Jesus is like, you guys are idiots. Like, we didn't say that. Jesus was nice. But he's kind of like, the way you guys think is so wrong. And so the, the Leverite law, it didn't exist during this time, but clearly this was sort of uh, in their thinking, in their culture, and, and how they went about business. And the idea was that this, this girl is now widowed. She was entitled to things from her husband, but because her husband is gone, she's going to be destitute. And so there was an obligation for the brother to provide a son to her. And then that son could become the heir, and then she would be taken care of. We don't want to get sort of lost in the the thinking of it. It seems very weird to us, but we don't want to get distracted. And so brother number two, Onan, was supposed to provide a son to her, and he didn't. And then we're told that God was unhappy with him for not providing a son to her, and so he took his life. And so now there's son number three, the baby. In my family, the little baby, Titus who everybody loves and adores and can get away with murder. And, you know, like the baby of the family is always the baby of the family. It just, it is what it is. And so now you have this guy, the third son. Uh, what is his name? Ashela. And so the third son is there. He's a little bit of a baby boy. Judah says, I don't know what's up with this girl. It's like, she marries my sons and then they die. Like, I'm a little bit nervous about providing son number three to her because I don't want to lose the baby. And so he makes this promise. He says, let the little whippersnapper grow up. And once the little whippersnapper grows up, I'll give him to you as a husband. And so time went along. He grew. He grew. He grew. He was of marrying age. He continued to get older and older and older. And Tamar realizes that that this 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 uh, this this brother is not going to be provided to her to have a son to take care of her sort of in the family. And then simultaneously, um, simultaneously, I'm trying to figure, well, I have a thought. <clears throat> the one thought I see in Judah's life, like as a point of application, is that this is a guy who does the wrong thing against his brother. He tries to cover it up. Then he runs. Then as things began going south for him in his life, he operates in this position of fear. And then as he's operating out of a position of fear, he continues to make more and more mistakes. Instead of from his initial sin, if he had just sort of gotten right with God, gotten right with his dad, gotten right with all of these these points in his life, maybe his life wouldn't have turned out this way. But there's something about sin that sort of snowballs. There's something about living in the flesh that causes us to operate out of a, a posture of fear and not a posture of trust. And so he's, he's so wrapped up in his, his son that he's, he's fearful that if he does this thing that he's supposed to do, that he could lose his son. So he's going to continue to do the wrong thing. And in the midst of this, then his wife dies. So then his wife dies. He has, he has a, a period of mourning. Whatever period this, this period is, he, he gets through the designated time of mourning. And then he's allowed, 
to come out of mourning. And so there's a sheep shearing party. And you guys know how those sheep shearing parties go. I mean, they're absolutely amazing. I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, this would be a time of drinking and partying and living it up with the guys. This is, I mean, this is football season just began or whatever it is. And the guys are having a guy's weekend away, shearing the sheep, drinking their beers, like having a wonderful time. He's out of mourning. He's making his way to the sheep shearing party. And as he is making his way to the sheep shearing party, Tamar gets word that he's going to the sheep shearing party. She's kind of a little upset that she's still without a son, uh, that this guy hasn't provided what she's going to do. So she, uh, she conceals herself. She goes, she makes herself look like a prostitute and she, uh, let's see, am I, am I, I'm, I'm, I gotta just get my notes up to here before I get too, I, I'm, I have like the guardrails on so I don't go too deep into the stories. So she, she comes up with a plan in order to acquire a son. And so she does that. Um, he's going to the sheep sharing party. He sees this prostitute. He's like, hey, I have an idea. She's like, okay, well, what, what sort of like, do you have your money with you or what? And he's like, He's like, no, I, I wasn't thinking this. Like, I, but I have these three things. I have my, my signet ring. Like, that was like his signature. He had a staff and he had his cord, I think was the third thing. And, and he said, how about I leave these with you? It's sort of like a good faith deposit. And then later payment will come. I'll send my servant. We'll have a, pay, I'll pay you. And so the, the, everything happens. She gets pregnant with a son or actually they're twins. Uh, he goes to the sheep shearing party. He comes back. He has a servant. He says, "Hey, there was a prostitute. I need to like, I need to pay her a couple goats, and or I may I just don't take my details for like. It was a couple something animals. So he's like bringing goats or sheep or something back to the girl. He sends a servant. They're wandering the streets trying to find the girl, and they're like, "Hey, where's the where's the, the where's the prostitute? Where where's she at?" And they're like, "There's no prostitute around here. I don't know what you're talking about." And so then the servant comes back and he's like, Hey, I, they say there's no prostitute there. There's no, there's no sign of this girl. What do you want me to do? And he's like, Yeah, let's not make a big deal of that. Cause that could be more embarrassing if we really like turned the stones over. Let's just let it be. We did our best. We tried to make payment. She wasn't there. Let bygones be bygones or whatever. Three months goes along. And what did you know that his daughter Tamar starts to show that she's pregnant? He gets furious. So he gets super mad at her unrighteousness. Oh, the irony here, huh? Um, so he's super furious that, that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And so he's going to go have her executed. And so then through this whole process, as this is all unfolding, they go to her to, to confront her for her sin, her unrighteousness. And she says, oh, you guys know whose stuff this is, the signet ring? Do you know whose staff this is? Do you know whose cord this is? They're like, oh, that's Judas. <laughs> oh, Houston, we got a problem here. And so he's exposed, and he recognizes that she's far more righteous than he is. Nowhere in the Bible is she condemned for her actions. Judas' sin, his unrighteousness, everything is exposed in a very public way. And then we have the last uh, three verses of chapter, whatever, chapter, chapter 38. So the last three verses or four verses, 27 through 30, these seem to be the verses that, that are 
the crux of the story. And then we read in this, these verses, it said, It came about the time when she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, uh, one stuck out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But, but it came about as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made yourself. So he, he was named Perez, which means breach. And afterwards, his brother came out, uh, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was named Zerah, which I don't, I think that means second or something. I don't, it means something very literal to the story. And so there's this, throughout Genesis, there's this theme of man thinks it's going to go one way, and then it's actually going to go the other way. So the, the number two brother actually, the, actually the guy, so he stuck out his hand, he put his hand back, then he came out second, so he's number two. But he actually gets the the place of of uh, authority, and throughout it's like number two takes the place of number one, and it just kind of goes contrary uh, to the whole situation of that they were used to or the custom that they were used to. And so now we wrap up chapter thirty eight. If you're just reading through Genesis, you're like, what just happened in this chapter? Like because they they would have no idea living this, knowing this story, they don't know about Matthew. They don't know about Jesus. They don't. When Matthew tells a story, he goes through the account and you go through the genealogy of Jesus, these names pop up. And it's like, whoa, our Messiah came through a very dysfunctional line, which brings a lot of encouragement to me um, because his family wasn't perfect either. And I think in this chapter, there's, there's, there's warnings of little compromises that I think always lead to big dangers. Some have tried to map out the chronology of chapter 38 and, and, and place it in alignment to all of Genesis chapters 37 through, through 50. And it's been suggested that like as you look at chapter 38, a lot of time happens there. He goes away. He gets married. He has one kid, two kids, three kids. Like, then there's, that takes time. And then those boys have to grow up and then they die, and then another kid is born. So all of this stuff happens over a lot more time than it took to read one chapter of Genesis. And so they've pieced together these, these stories, and some, I don't know, they suggest that this latter part of the story happened in between the sort of the two visits of, of the brothers going down to Egypt, trying to find help. They go down once, they go back to the dad, then they go back the second time with a little brother, Benjamin, who is Joseph's little brother. And then Joseph says, this guy has to stay, go get the dad. And some suggest that through this experience with Tamar, that God was actually, the point of this is is showing that God was kind of working in Judah's heart. Because he acts in a totally different way that's out of character for him during that story. For the only time in, in the biblical account, does, what does he say? He looks at Joseph and he says, if you take this little brother of ours, my dad's going to die. So what I want you to do is take me, throw me into jail. And so some have suggested <clears throat> that, the, that the chronology of this, that this event with with. Tamar and himself and sort of his sin being exposed. It could be 
that this is happening chronologically to align with the much longer story that we're going to go through, sort of softening his heart. I don't know. Sounds good to me. It's something out of this chapter. And then we come to chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the body, of the bodyguard brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So this is sort of the beginning of the, the parenthetical statement. If you turn with me back to chapter 37, the very last verse where we left off at right before we got into chapter 38, we read right there, meanwhile, the Midianites, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So when chapter 37 ends, we're sort of told what happened to Joseph, how he went down there, he was sold, now he finds himself as a, a slave uh, with Potiphar. When we enter back into chapter 39, it's expanded a little bit, but it basically uh, ties us back into that last verse. And it says, now Joseph had been down, taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, uh, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So now Joseph finds himself in Egypt. Life is going very different in Egypt. Uh, we assume that a new language is being learned, a different culture, and he's a slave. And so we see that he's under this, this guy who's pretty important. And in chapter, in verse 2, and throughout chapter 30, 39, we see these phrases that are very different from chapter 38. In 38, all we see is God's name mentioned twice in, in reference to God taking the life of two very evil men. Nowhere else. We don't see God mentioned from Judah. We don't see God mentioned anywhere in the story. But now in verse 2 and throughout chapter 39, we see phrases like, the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. I just got to kind of check in on my notes to see if I'm anywhere close to where I'm supposed to be. Uh, Yeah, I think I'm close. Um, So God is blessing him. He's a slave. He's serving, working well. He becomes successful in this role as a slave under this, this Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, verse 4. And he made him an overseer over his house and all that he owned he put into his charge. It came about from the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed him the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So Joseph finds his way into his house. Joseph does the whole uh, Colossians, I think it's Colossians 3.23, that whatever you do, do unto the Lord. As you work, you work as unto the Lord. He is here as a slave. He's working unto the Lord. I'm a slave. I don't want to be here, but here I am. And so I'm going to honor God with everything that I do. 
as he works with this sort of intention to please God, God blesses him. He he blesses the whole household, the outside, the inside of the house and outside of the house. The guy who Potiphar, who is Joseph's slave owner, recognizes Joseph's work ethic, quality, character. Everything about him is honoring God, and he sees. This man who is not of the Judeo-Christian sort of worldview, this is a guy who served many, many gods in Egypt. He recognizes that something is different about this man, and his God is causing an increase of blessing to everything that he has. And so he just lets Joseph run. It's a beautiful picture. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So I have no idea how you filled in that blank with uh, some of you might think tall, dark, and handsome. Some of you might think bald, a little chubby. Uh, like, I, like I, I don't know what image comes to your mind. It doesn't fill in the blank for us, but he was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So she's coming after him. There's a lot of speculation. The Bible doesn't really give us any clarity. Some say, oh, he worked a lot and he was away. Some suggested that because he was in charge of this sort of household that he could have been a eunuch. It just doesn't say. What it says is this woman was attracted to him. This woman was married and this woman is making the moves on Joseph. And she's coming after him, we'll see like day after day after day after day propositioning him. And Joseph says, listen, the only one greater than me that has a higher rank in this house is my master. He's put everything in charge. He's given me access to everything except for you because you're his wife. Why would I do this? Why would I do this? The last phrase that I didn't read or the last sentence, he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against who? He doesn't say against Potiphar. He says against God. Joseph recognized that everything that he did, how he behaved at his workplace, how he behaved in his sexual life, this ultimately was before God. And so who he was trying to please, first and foremost, was God. And he recognized that to to breach Potiphar's, Potiphar's trust, in this way, would be a violation against God, and he would be sinning against God. David, in Psalm 51, after his uh, being confronted by Nathan for what he had done to Bathsheba, uh, her husband, the men of Israel, his, his great vile sin, he writes in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Certainly David wronged other people in his sin, but he recognized first and foremost his violation was against God. And when we measure ourselves against God, we recognize how holy he is, 
how inferior and unholy we are, and it sort of just removes any sort of anything that we could like stand on to justify our sin. When we compare ourselves to other people, we can say, ah, well, they kind of deserved it, or ah, they've slipped up too, and ah, what's the big deal? But when we measure against God, we can't do that. David understood that. Joseph here at this stage in his life, he understands that if I was to violate the trust between my master by taking his wife, ultimately my sin is against God. And so he stops there. And then in verse 10, we see it didn't stop her. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household and none of the wait none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by the garment saying, "Lie with me." And he came he left his garment by her hand and fled and went outside. I struggle with the whole, you know, seeing Donnie Osmond and the girl chasing around in the scene from the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor dream coat. Just makes you wonder, this guy has such bad luck with coats. You know, first his, like, rainbow coat, now this coat. Like, the guy should just, like, not wear coats anywhere because they seem to be the source of getting him in trouble. And so verse 13, I think, is where we were. When she saw that he had left his garment in her head and fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. He fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and he fled outside. And so obviously we see Joseph taking the tactic of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such which is common to man. God is faithful who would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. And in this case, it meant literally run. Like he didn't flirt with the idea. He didn't like meander down that road. He simply split. And the truth will sort itself out in this story. But she comes up with this story. And she twists this against Joseph. Now, I don't think that, I really don't think that anybody believed her story, especially when the master comes in. If this was certainly the truth, this would have been a a capital punishment. And he could have just said the word, had him executed. But I I suspect it's not in the, it's not in the text. I, I suspect that the master had an idea that something fishy was going on here, but he had to do something. So he, he sends him back to jail and he goes back down into the pit and, and again, the truth will come out eventually. Uh, verse 19. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph, his master, took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. 
Again, we see this. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended his kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all of the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. And so again, he gets down there, he goes to the jail, he's, and in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of this, God continues to prosper him. Uh, Joseph, his circumstances might have changed yet again, but he continues to hold course and he says, I'm going to honor God, I'm going to do the best work that I can do wherever I find myself. And here he found himself in jail. And in jail, it didn't take long for those that are over him to recognize Joseph's character. It didn't take them long to recognize that Joseph had this God that blessed him and led them. And so they just put all of, he just became the sort of the leader amongst the prisoners and he was left alone by the, the guy that was over them. So the question is like, what do we do with these two chapters? I think, I do think that these two chapters fit together. Um, so many people sort of shy away from chapter 38, and I understand that. But like, what do you, what do, you do with a, a chapter in this context that J. Vernon McGee refers to as, like, as useful as a cow with five legs, uh, which is not useful at all, and I'm not even a, a, a rancher. Um, so of these, of these two stories, like Joseph is a wonderful story. It's so fun. I'm looking forward to going through the rest of, of, of Genesis looking at the life of Joseph. But really when Genesis ends, as far as I, I know right now, like Joseph's story just kind of ends. The story follows the line of chapter 38. That's the storyline. That doesn't fit with us. And I'm convinced that as we go through Genesis, as we've been working our way off and on over the course of a couple years here, is God wants to make it very clear to us not to be confused at any point that there's nothing that man does that gains favor with him like or gains relationship, that our, our being separated by sin from God, it's not restored by our good deeds. And so we so desperately want to read these stories and say, oh, the Messiah is going to come through the good guys. But the problem is, is that the good, the, the good guys really aren't there. If we were to, I mean, Joseph, I think, is clean so far. We'll see if any stories pop up. But in my memory, I think Joseph's clear. But some of the stories that we've already gone through are pretty, like, horrific. These guys that we thought were good guys are just not good guys. And it's clear that the good guy in the Bible is God, and he's the only good guy. And in the midst of this, I, I find hope that my relationship with God isn't contingent on me being a good guy. Like I can try to be a good guy and I want to be a good guy. But at the end of the day, when you compare me to God, I'm not a good guy. God's a good guy. God's the one who's holy. God's the one who's righteous. God is the one that makes a way for me to have a relationship with him. It's not based on anything that I do. My prayers that I walk and live my life with integrity and that I honor him with my life. But at the end of the day, I'm just a man. And I think of Alistair Begg, his, his line that he says all the time, the best of men are men at best. And that's, that's, that's our reality. And then when we look at chapters 38 and 39, when I look at these two side by side, the thing that has grabbed me, gra- grabbed, grabbed, 
gripped me. Uh, the thing that has gripped me in these two stories is in chapter 38 is a story of a free man who is utterly enslaved to his sin. And in his being enslaved to his sin, he just gets more and more and more enslaved. And he is a free man by his flesh, but he's totally enslaved. And he, he's trapped. And then we look at Joseph, this man who is, finds himself sold into slavery by his brothers, is a slave in every sense of the word, from being in Potiphar's house down into the bottom of the basement as as a, as a true jailer. And yet this enslaved man as is, is as free as you can possibly be. And I think that there's a lesson in, in the contrast of these two stories for us. If you want to live your life for you, and if you want to live your life according to the flesh, you're only going to find yourself enslaved to sin. It doesn't lead to peace, joy, happiness. But if you want true freedom, you walk with Christ. And as you walk with Christ, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the things that happen to you, you can have true peace. You can have true freedom. And you don't need to lean on your circumstances to find these things. And so my encouragement today, as I look through these stories, I think that the big message is, is like really what a lot of Sunday messages come down to. Keep your eyes on Christ and walk with him. And as you walk with him, you'll find true liberation and freedom. And you can be in the worst of circumstances, and yet you can be the freest person in the world because you're with your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for the redemptive story that we see throughout the Bible. We thank you, God, that, um, that the story of the Messiah doesn't follow any good line or any, any line that seems to make sense, that, that when Adam and Eve sinned, the DNA of humanity was contaminated and it's easy for us to look at other humans and to think that I'm better than some and worse than others. And hopefully that uh, when I die, I'm in the top half, if, that's your, if that was the grading curve. But the Bible shows us over and over and over again that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And even to miss the mark by a little bit is to miss the mark grossly. And so, Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption that began back in Genesis chapter 3. And we see it unfolding throughout the scriptures that ultimately this Messiah of ours, this Jesus, the Christ, would come through this really, like this family that, the, that whoever reads the Bible says, this is just a foul and gross and horrific story. And yet that's the line that you would choose to follow. And we... We, we so often use the phrase, the, the lion of Judah. And we think, oh, what a wonderful man Judah must have been. <laughs> but it really, it's so far from the truth. And so we thank you, God, that Jesus came as we are into a, a sinful line. And yet he, being God, was free from sin. That he could ultimately make the sacrifice for us. 
that would allow us to enter into this relationship with you, that we could be free from our sin. And Father, I pray that you would help us to learn the lesson of Joseph, that regardless of what happens to us, whether we get the, uh, you know, an unjust thing happening to us from our perspective, whether we think we're a good person and, and something bad happens to us physically or relationally, Father, I pray that you would help us just to keep our eyes on Christ, that we would seek to live for you, that we would seek to honor you in our day-to-day lives, and that in the midst of our circumstances, we would find freedom and peace and joy knowing that we're with our Lord. Father, help us to apply these truths to our lives. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.